Welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. This podcast is for leaders in the social sector like you who want to make a difference. Each episode is packed with practical ideas on how you can be more innovative and create an even bigger social impact. We share our ideas on what you can do and also speak to leaders from the sector to share best practice. So let's get into it and let's talk impact. All right, welcome to the Innovate for Impact podcast. Dan Bentley here, and as per usual, joined with Tracy Newman. Today, we've got a very special guest, Ross Wyatt from Think Impact. Ross, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me along. Great to have you here. Look, Ross, did you want to just tell everybody a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. About 10 years ago, I founded a business called Think Impact, really to support organizations to manage for better impact in a whole lot of different ways. That business, I'm delighted to say, is continued to tick along beautifully. And as a matter of fact, I've just stepped back from the managing director role and handed that over to the very capable hands of Kevin Robbie, who many of your listeners will know. I am uh, continuing with the organisation, of course, and working with, more with clients on really reimagining how we account for value uh, in our economy and our society. I love that term of reimagining and the possibility yeah, that that it's creates. Important, it's an important factor. I think it's one of the it's one of the great limitations. It was actually, you know, the person who invented the, the way that we measure our economic progress in terms of GDP back in the 1920s actually sort of said in the paper that he submitted to the US Treasury at the time, he said, don't ever use this to measure the progress of a country. Yet for the last however many years, 80-odd years, that's about all we've done. So it's really time for a rethink of that and really measuring our progress in a way that actually accounts for the well-being of our society and the individuals in it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and look, the reason we wanted to have you on the show, Ross, was to talk a bit about that sort of stuff. We wanted to especially talk about impact uh, and impact evaluation and talk a little bit about what's the current state in the sector and where is it sort of heading? So I might get you to jump into that and just sort of talk a bit about your thoughts on that. I guess I would characterize the current state when you sort of talk about the sector, you know, I think we think about the, the for-purpose sector, you know, all of those organizations, it's about 15% of our employees and about very significant part of our, our whole society and economy is organisations that exist to actually deliver purpose rather than profit. So if you looked at the, the state of that sector, I think you know, there's three things that I would kind of point out that I think we're on the cusp of really changing and turning over. The first of those is the way that they compete for funding. And I suppose I could summarise it and say, you know, it's, it's a competition for funding rather than collaboration for impact. And that's not the fault of the organisations. That's been kind of, uh, you know, the whole funding mechanisms require competitive tendering for uh, so many of the uh, really important services that are fulfilled by that sector. And that set up some really perverse kind of dynamics in the sector, I've got to say, you know, ones where they're required to kind of demonstrate and justify their existence rather than being supported to properly learn, evolve, develop, work together as a system. And I think you know, that competition for funding and the challenges that are associated with that leads to the second of the dynamics, and that's the lack of joined up effort. And I use the word joined up because words like collaboration and partnership and collective and, you know, they're, they're all kinds of so loaded and mean different things, but they're all important. So if I just talk about joined up effort and most of the, the challenges that we have come from the systems that we, we've adopted, you know, we, we invented this idea of an economy to serve society, but now we have kind of it's all got inverted somehow and the society is now subservient to the economy. And we've seen that in, in the way that we kind of 
even the conversations we're having now about, you know, gig economies and inequity in, in income and wealth. And every time that's tried to be addressed, some great argument going on right now about the third level tax changes that uh, has a chance to actually recoup significant amounts of tax that would be going to the tax benefits that would be going to the richest 1%. That's a real classic example why we have so, so much struggle in trying to deal with that. This lack of joined up efforts, so the challenges are so big and, and so complex, no single organisation can solve any one of them, yet they're required to kind of exist as individual organisations and have their little bit and over here and their little bit over there, irrespective of what challenge you're trying to meet. Competition for funding, lack of joined up effort. The third is this mismatch, in, and this, this takes us into the evaluation space, this mismatch between long-term systemic change that we're all asking for and working for and the evidencing of short-term program-level outcomes. So, you know, I would say so much, I don't know what the percentages are, 99% will say, hypothetically, of the effort in evaluation is actually evaluating the short-term program outcomes, yet the investment in understanding long-term change is just so, it seems like a bridge too far for so many funders and and organisations involved in evaluation. Do you find in your work that the reason why we're so focused on these sort of short-term program outcomes and looking at things like, you know, bums on seats for programs, et cetera, is just because it's linked to what the funder thinks is important to know they're sort of getting an ROI on their impact investment? Absolutely, you know, and I don't want to point at any individual sector here, but often government funding, you know, for programs requires the receiver of those funds to evidence that they've conducted the activities that they said they were going to conduct. And, you know, I'll talk a little bit about more some of the more forward looking approaches that are starting to address that challenge. But certainly, that's one of the big changes, you know, really understanding, do we really understand the degree to which our society is thriving, or not over matters of decades and generations rather than an individual who's gone through a program. And I don't think I've ever seen a, uh, an evaluation that doesn't show something good that is happening. The danger, of course, of evidencing short-term programs is that we actually embed the current practices. So in other words, you know, I sometimes talk about how evaluation kills people. If you look at the, the figures of suicide or the death and injury to women from their intimate partners, for example, the figures are, are horrendous. So every evaluation that's done that evidences that, oh, there's been a slight increase in that, slight increase is that. So we'll keep doing what we're doing. And under that regime, people are literally dying. And if they're not dying, then the inequities are growing. Wow. It's, uh, it's interesting when you look at it from that perspective, isn't it? And I, and I think the thing that we found in our work too is that when you are measuring things this way, and service providers are sort of so reliant on this funding, it does become a bit of like a tick the box type exercise where people are trying to go, how do we just meet these KPIs rather than getting to focus on their mission and what the organization's really there to achieve? And I think that really is not helpful for innovation. It really sort of means that we sort of end up managing that status quo and just sort of trying to put out little sort of spot fires in order to make sure we tick the right boxes. Look, and I don't mean to suggest there's not great things going on out there. You know, there is so much evaluation to, that goes on to learn and improve, but there is also still a significant amount of evaluation that's there to justify the current activity. And I think it's a really good question for organisations going into an evaluation process is to ask themselves, you know, to what degree are they evaluating to justify versus evaluating to learn change 
connect with other organizations, share the learnings about what works and what, what doesn't work around some of the complex challenges that we're facing. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some great work already happening out there that we're seeing collective impact approaches and we're seeing amazing outcomes. We had uh, David Pearson from the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness on the podcast a, a couple of months ago now and just hearing him talk about some of the work that his group of organizations are doing with that collective impact type focus is amazing and what they've seen overseas that's been able to be achieved by taking that sort of an approach so it's kind of tricky like the sectors in this space at the moment where funding and 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 that's kind of the environment and that's how the system's kind of working but i think a lot of people if you spoke to them about some of the things that we've just chatted about would agree that that's where it needs to head in your opinion what kind of needs to happen do you think for us to be able to start taking some of these approaches that we all kind of know is what's needed and there are, as you pointed out, there, there are so many great things that are happening in Collective Impact, you know, which is a, both an approach, but it's also Collective Impact. I just want to touch on that for a second. It's more than just an approach. It's actually sort of based in evidence about collaborative or joined up efforts that actually worked. And it looks at those kind of, you know, five features and see what, what are the characteristics of, of things that work. And so when you look at clarity of common agenda and shared measurement systems and backbone organisations and mutually reinforcing activities, and constant communication. Their features, you know, I often think it's not so much a methodology, it's more features of collaborations that actually are shown to work. Couldn't agree more. And housing is a great example because there's so many players that are involved in actually and going to be involved in actually turning around the system. And if you take a kind of a systems approach to housing and homelessness and you say, well, take one step back even further rather than trying to address homelessness, you go, why do we have homelessness? And, you know, the, the key feature, of course, is that we look at housing in Australia as the single most common method of building individual wealth. That's what a house is to most of us, you know. Anyone who owns a house will know that how important that's been to their individual wealth. We don't see it through a human rights lens. We don't even see it through a, an essential infrastructure lens. And if you looked at housing through either of those lenses or both of those lenses, rather than a kind of a wealth-building activity, the whole conversations we have around it would be different you know I, I love the media reports at the moment say oh my god drama you know housing prices aren't going up very fast anymore what a problem that is and you get kind of well, if you took a different lens and said actually housing is just essential infrastructure just like water just like energy just like um data these are all kind of essential infrastructures for a modern city and why shouldn't we look at it through that lens and how might our policy settings be different if we did that. And if you look around the world, we're not alone, but we certainly uh, have, a, have a very strong focus in Australia on this individual wealth building aspect of relation to housing, hence homelessness. And then, then organisations like you're talking about, they're the ones that have got to kind of pick up the pieces from this systemic problem. So some of the approaches we're, we're now seeing, and they're evolving out of a whole range of places in response to these three challenges, if you like, that I put up around where the sector is at. The way we look at it, Think Impact, is we look at it through the lens of voice, value, and systems. So if we sort of take a moment to sort of think about that and think about, well, what does it look like to address these challenges and what's the future of voice? And I think one of your last podcasts was on human-centred design, you know, and that's clearly one of the uh, really important practices that's saying, well, what happens when we put the voice of people who, who have lived experience at the centre of design? And that's a great kind of example of a response. There's lots around that have great names and great practices, you know, participatory decision-making and these kind of things, but they all have one thing in common and that's ensuring that we are doing things with community, not 
to community. And evaluation is one of the kind of classics, you know, if you look at some of the great failures in policy and practice of the last 200 years, you know, it would probably start with if you looked at uh, Aboriginal voice as a great example, you know, hence the importance of this, you know, enshrining our Aboriginal voice in Parliament at the moment, you know, this is why it's not a token thing. It's 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 absolutely essential that we do that kind of thing, listen to the voices of people who are experiencing a whole range of challenges associated with, with inequity, but also have so much to bring have so much knowledge and, and wisdom, irrespective of whether, you know, you're talking about diversity in a gender sense or in a cultural sense or a country of origin sense or, or any particular sense you look at, this idea about ensuring that all voices are heard is actually critically important in actually coming up with better ways to evaluate and understand change that is occurring as a result of the things that we're doing. And it's not just the programs that are trying to fix the policy failures but actually enshrining that voice right back into policy design and policy settings and public debate and all the things that go along with that. So that's the first kind of thing is is ensuring you make space and empower the voice to be in there. One of the great challenges of uh, co-design, for example, another great practice that's around is, is the burden that that sometimes places on the communities that you're working with when the co-design models suggest that you should be involving them in every phase of the process. How are they remunerated and valued for that and having spent six years working in a uh, conversation between uh, one of the state governments and Aboriginal communities in that state and uh, while it was supposed to be a balanced conversation you know every conversation that we were facilitating had paid representatives from government with volunteer representatives from community and and yeah it's that classic example and and it screams at you sometimes so voice is the first one I'll take on systems the next one, and it means so many different things to so many different people, and just to talk about some of the things that are occurring. The circular economy is probably, you know, a really good place to start is this idea that, you know, if you take a macro sense of where we are in the world, and when I was born there was 3 billion people in the world, there's now pushing 8. Theoretical maximum is a 10, 11 or 12, depending on which kind of forecast you you want to look at. We're already consuming 2.3 times the resources that the Earth's able to provide. And here we are in one lifetime, the Earth's gone from third full to full. So don't tell me that systems aren't going to come crashing down very quickly. They they are and they already are around us. We're seeing it all the time. It's just that it happens at a pace that we don't kind of sense. So the idea of actually getting out of, you know, this consumption economy and into much more thinking about circular economy, and that's already revolving much more into kind of a regenerative systems approach. And we're looking, how can we set up systems so they naturally regenerate rather than just recycle some of the stuff, which is where a lot of the circular economy takes you. We actually want to start actually addressing and turning around because we can't keep using 2.3 times the Earth's resources for very long. One of my great quotes, I can't remember who said it, was the only people who believe that you can kind of have unconstrained growth in a constrained system, you're either a fool or an economist. And apologies to all you economists out there. I know many of you are very involved as well. So it's kind of economic thinking. We're applying the same economic models now to a world that's full, to one that was a third full when I was born. Second one, collective impact, we've talked about a bit. Another interesting one, and one, you know, I guess a challenge I'd throw out to government is this idea of competitive tendering for social services. This is a classic one that fails to address systems. It says, let's pit this organisation against this organisation to see who can deliver this 
I don't know what it is, children's program, women's program, drug and alcohol problem, you know, disability, whatever it is, you know, let's see who can do it the cheapest, which is fine if you're, you know, buying toilet paper and pens in a large government department or, or whatever, committed tendering might be great for that. But for solving intergenerational poverty or entrenched disadvantage, it doesn't make any sense at all. And so we've been doing some work now with the federal government on, you know, commissioning for better outcomes. This is a really important notion that many of the departments are now looking at is going, well, how do we actually involve ourselves with communities who, who we're seeking to, to produce change for, the organisations that are working in that sector, and let's collectively commission how we're going to actually invest in that in that system to actually drive the change that we want. And it requires everyone to kind of reimagine their role. It's not about two NGOs turning up and each trying to bid, bid their case for why they should be the one that gets this grant or, or this funding. It's really about coming together to understand how together we can actually drive long-term change and putting in place consistent long-term measurement and recording to the degree in which that change is genuinely occurring, that's what's going to happen. You know, I think the philanthropy sector has a lot to play in this as well. You know, they're the kind of risk capital of social services. You know, philanthropy has a much higher tolerance for risk and innovation than government funding. So there's a lot that can be done in, you know, in, in the philanthropy sector to actually try new things and bring organisations and people and communities and policymakers together around challenges rather than to cherry pick favourites of who you're going to grant. In our little world, we've developed a, an approach at Think Impact called impact-led design, where rather than going, well, let's evaluate on the basis of what activity you currently do and evaluate what's happening as a result, we'll always be able to detect some positive change because organisations are doing good things. But as someone wrote in a great book called Doing Good is Not Good Enough, what happens if you turn that around and go, actually, let's put the current activity to one side and go, start with what is the evidence and the context of the challenge that we're trying to meet and what impact do we want to have? What are we planning to have from that? Then if, if we start with that clarity of impact and start with that, that impact at the centre, then kind of go, well, what outcomes would have to occur? Then what activities would we have to be doing to actually get those outcomes? At what scale? And then what funding would be required? It's kind of a reverse theory of change in some ways to actually start to go. And then, of course, you create a monitoring, evaluation, learning, design loop around that to actually go, well, how would we monitor that change? And then importantly, how would we learn and redesign? And I think the LD in monitoring evaluation is kind of the missing bit all the time is we monitor and evaluate a lot. We know what happened. Not as hard as taking the next step and going, well, how do we kind of prepare ourselves to learn from the findings of that impact study or that evaluation. And then, again, the missing bit, and this happens so, so rarely, how do we redesign what we're currently doing, redesign the whole system? And that's the bit. So we often talk about, and I talk about m and &E, we talk about MELD, Monetary Evaluation, Learn, Design. And that's really important that you start out with an intention to design. If you're loving what you're hearing on our podcast, you should join us for one of our live events where we cover how you can build a more innovative and impactful organisation. We also have our very popular Co-Design for Impact Masterclass where I'll teach you how to run your own co-design projects and how to set them up for success. Spots are limited, so grab your ticket to this and our other events at impactoconsulting.com.au slash events. 
I think it's great that you've incorporated the learning and design because it also then means that when you're creating your evaluation, you can be really clear about what's the information that we need to be able to make the decisions that we need to make to be able to translate that learning into changed activity. So it also then means that you're not just evaluating everything and all this information would be great and asking a lot of the people who are participating in your services because you're, you know, wanting to get lots of information from them. You know, you can be quite targeted then, you know, like this is what we need to know to be able to make this decision and then use that to redesign what we're doing. Yeah, spot on, Tracy. That idea of redesigning and, you know, impact-led designer and, and sometimes we call it impact-led co-design when, you know, if we can get it right, if you get it really right, you know, bring all the parties together. To be honest, we think that's a bit of a game changer for the current idea of let's design the best service that we can imagine and then measure the outcomes and then kind of tweak around the edges. And I think that's embedded a lot of our kind of systems and approaches, not always often to, to great advantage, but but not always to, to the best advantage. I like with what you said as well there, Ross, where when you're looking at it from that perspective of let's think about it backwards and then let's then think about, well, where could the funding come from? I could imagine that starting to open people's eyes to new funding opportunities. You know, so many organizations are at the moment and leaders of organizations are talking about diversifying their funding, you know, not just having all their eggs in one basket with a, you know, a traditional funder. They're looking at having, you know, social enterprise spinoffs and all sorts of things. And I guess when you take that approach and you do look at it broadly like that, I'm sure that does open up a lot more opportunities to go down some of those paths too. Oh, and I'm glad you raised social enterprise as well. You know, it's just so important that we don't sort of see our economy and society as this dichotomy and going, okay, over here we've got for-profit organisations and over here we've got for-purpose organisations and somehow they're, they're operating in completely different worlds and, and these for-profit organisations are allowed to have these externalities, as economists like to talk about it. Sorry, I feel like I'm picking on economists. I'm, I'm not. But externalities, so whether we're externalising a health problem that's picked up by the health sector or we're pumping CO2 into the atmosphere that where the cost is picked up by the whole world and climate change, whether we're um, running so that we, we actually are creating unsafe working conditions for our gig economy employees as we're starting to see. You know, this idea that you know, technology is going to save us, what ha- what's happening is that the labour legislation around technology is not keeping up with... So basically all that the technology is doing is actually creating... An underclass, in effect, you know, while it might be able to deliver cheaper food to you, to what degree is the technology permitting people to have meaningful, valuable employment? The final point, so I talked about voice and we've talked about systems, you know, this all comes together for us nicely in the accounting for value. As I said earlier, we think about value or prosperity or progress in our economy by, you know, are we getting growth or not? And God forbid, if we're not getting GDP growth, then you'd think that we're, you know, we're about to to fall off the planet. The idea is that we should be actually accounting for multiple capitals. You know, organisations take financial capital and they make financial capital, but they also take human capital and they create or destroy human capital. They also take natural capital. And so, you, you know, whether that's things out of the ground, whether it's air, whether it's water. With you know, We're seeing at the moment with the bees and, the, you know, the, the challenges associated with losing biodiversity, you know, it's often subtle, but when the system breaks, it really breaks. And what we experience, we experience, oh, you know, lettuces are now really expensive or whatever, but really they're, they're all evidence that we're actually not accounting properly for multiple capitals. 
So that's one of the great things. And I, I do love the work of Kate Raworth on, on the idea of a donut economy, you know, that we can have an economy, but it, it's got to exist beneath, operate within the threshold of the ecosystems that support it, or the biodiversity, the, the natural systems ecosystem, and it's got to operate above a social floor, you know, you know, people shouldn't be allowed to suffer human rights abuses, be disadvantaged. Everyone should be able to participate in a good economy. So this is not a competition. I, I did see our uh, current leader of the opposition, federal opposition, really deriding this idea of a well-being economy, and it was really disturbing. I thought, well, who wouldn't want an economy that actually produces well-being for everybody? I mean, would you rather have you know, a million dollars in your bank and exist where there's high crime rates and degraded environment and, you know, massive social problems? Or would you rather have a little bit less in your bank but live in a healthier society? I, I mean, what does prosperity look like to you? You know, that's why I think impacts sort of tagline we've sort of chosen is towards a new prosperity and where a new prosperity does allow for both wealth and well-being. So, yep, voice, systems and value, we think they're the three important levers and that's what we do to support organisations to better account for value, to better work in and operate and create systemic approaches to, to the challenges that they're addressing and place the voice of community stakeholders beneficiaries, as they're often called, at the centre of design. So where to from here? And I think, you know, that was the question you posed me, Dan, was what's beyond evaluation and can we actually imagine a better way for some of these things? And part of what we're doing now, and I invite your listeners to get in touch and, and join in, is to produce some really thoughtful pieces on reimagining some of our systems we're starting with reimagining our food system. It, it is a classic. It's sitting there for all of us to see that, you know, half of the food we grow in Australia, could be 40, could be 60, depending on which, which, which you're looking at, ends up going to waste. And there's a whole lot of reasons for that along the way. We won't just blame supermarkets for wanting perfectly, perfect shiny, shiny apples. It's more, it's much more than that. So there's waste occurs in, in so many different ways. Yet we have, you know, something like one in five people in Australia experiencing food insecurity. So what's happened, of course, is you've got these organisations they are all doing great jobs, doing food rescue and trying to get rescue and getting it out. But again, what you've done is, is you create an under-resourced sector attempting to solve the big gap in what is a systemic problem. So if you sort of said, what would a reimagined food system look like in Australia where we don't have food insecurity, people can have a healthier relationship with food. We don't have food deserts, you know, where, where people can't access fresh and healthy food. What would happen if we changed the concentration of ownership? You know, this is one of the one of the classics that this applies to just about any sector you look at is when we've concentrated ownership within two, three large corporations. People in those organisations are great. I know they work hard to produce great products and, and, and all that. But the simple fact that we've concentrated ownership in the food sector creates these outcomes and creates an unstable and non-resilient food sector. And we've just seen the results. So there's this whole idea around distributed systems. And we're doing it in energy now. You know, if, if we've got energy being produced locally as well as energy produced centrally and we can kind of distribute that system, the whole system is much more resilient. Part of it breaks down, the other parts can pick it up. So that's what we've uh, got to do as we get closer and closer to the population 
precipice in the world is actually distribute our systems so that no one system breaks down dramatically when it meets an ecological challenge or a climate challenge or a social challenge or distributed systems. So anyway, anyone wants to get involved, feel free to send me an email or get get onto our website at Think Impact. And uh, yeah, please get in touch. And, you know, we're looking to really build a community of people who really want to kind of participate in serious conversations that will really move us forward into the next generation. You know, I have children and grandchildren now and and, uh, I do worry when my grandchildren are just turning one or thereabouts. And I really do worry about what kind of world they're going to grow up given that my life went from 3 billion in the world to something like 10. What will theirs look like as it goes from 10 to 12 and starts to break down? Yeah, it's scary stuff, isn't it, when we think about it like that? And we're just seeing so many impacts of those systems not working, you know, really starting to escalate and sort of come through. So lots of work to be done. I I did really enjoy the chat, Ross. We talked about a number of different, I guess, challenges that are within that current system and also some great approaches and philosophies and ways of collaborating and working together that can help us solve those challenges that we haven't been able to solve so far, but be able to solve them into the future if we just work a bit better together, get the right people in the room and collaborate and really think about things broadly rather than narrowly. I think that was the other thing I took out of your points. So we'll put a link to your website, the Think Impact website in the show notes where all of your contact details are as well. Just wanted to say thanks so much for taking the time out to speak with us today. We really enjoyed that chat. Yeah, like I said, some great points you raised there and I'm sure a lot of our listeners got a lot of value out of what you spoke about and some of your ideas. So thanks. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Tracy, for your time. No worries. Cheers. Thanks, Russ. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Innovate for Impact podcast. Any links to what we spoke about today will be posted in the show notes. If you'd like to know more about social innovation, visit our website where we have a heap of tools to help you on your way. Visit impactoconsulting.com.au. Thanks for listening. Now go out there and make an impact.